Now, for all you uh, science and social science sharks in the audience, I want to start with some facts. Fact. Anxiety riddles our culture in all sorts of ways, familiar and manageable ways, but also intense and crippling ways. Uh, And wherever it does, wherever it's present, it robs us of joy, it undermines gratitude, and it dismantles inner peace. I've spent the last week or so reading a bit about anxiety, and if you've read my blog, you'll know uh, that anxiety is something with which I'm personally familiar. So I've done a little bit of research, gotten some refreshment on what's at play in this. And I want to share a bit of what I've learned with you. Let me put a disclaimer out there. When we're talking about anxiety this morning in the context of this sermon, we're just talking about what I call regular anxiety. I'm well aware that anxiety exists on a spectrum and that some of it is more clinically serious than other forms. Uh, So if you have a a more uh, intense struggle with anxiety, please don't feel uh, overwhelmed or or, uh, sort of burdened by what I'm saying. We're just talking about regular anxiety here today. Uh, The type of anxiety that surfaces when we ask or think questions such as, will I have enough? Uh, Will I be loved? Will my life matter? Will I be okay socially or economically or relationally or emotionally or economically? These types of questions, right? This is what we're talking about. So let's pray, and then we're going to move in. I want to share a bit with you. Almighty God, before whom all hearts are open, we ask that you would fill our hearts with your word and the truth of the gospel, uh, and that in this we would find a peace which transcends understanding, and that would guard us as we move into a new week, and that it would be of good service and blessing to our neighbors. Amen. So, anxiety, a few things, fast facts. Anxiety is pervasive. This is uh, probably nothing new to many of you, but some 40 million people in North America will experience some sort of impairment this year because of anxiety. And about a third of our overall mental mental health and well-being budget is spent on anxiety-related conditions, just about $40 billion. Uh, In fact, of the 10 most commonly prescribed drugs, number seven and eight on that list are anti-anxiety medications. Anxiety is a mother. It gives birth to all sorts of other problems. It's bad for your heart, literally. Uh, It inclines us to addictions. Uh, Spiritually, it can cause people to question their faith and to feel very distant from God. Anxiety robs us of being able to be present where we are. That's a big one. I know that one. Anxiety is also a virus. It can sort of spread. It can permeate social atmospheres and jump from one person to the next. I've experienced that. Perhaps you have too. In a culture that pulses with stress like ours, I think we're all the more at risk of having anxiety infused into us all the time in different ways. Anxiety is largely irrational. Uh, What do I mean by that? I mean that it doesn't always correspond to reality and that it's often futile or a waste of time. So uh, we worry about things and experience a loss of peace that we don't need to worry about. Uh, America's richest people, this just makes the point so well, the winners of the global economy regularly report worrying about job security, retirement income, financial well-being. Regularly report that. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, is that our worrying is not constructive. Worry is not constructive thought. It's futile. Here I think we do well to remember the, uh, the quote from Mark Twain. I've spent most of my life worrying about things that never happened. Right? Or perhaps more poignantly, the words of the great English minister Charles Spurgeon 
Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but it empties today of its strength. How does the Bible interpret and explain anxiety? At a very general level, I think the Bible sees anxiety, the lack of inner tranquility and peace that's so common in our world. It sort of explains that in terms of uh, shalom. Some of you might know this. It's a big concept and a very important word in the Old Testament. Shalom is what we translate as peace in the English Bible. But it means so much more than peace. It means so much more than the absence of war, right? Shalom actually, this precious term, uh, refers to a state of being that's individual and corporate, relational and emotional, uh, spiritual, political, economic, right, where, where we experience well-being and flourishing and thriving and things are sort of ordered rightly in our lives and in the world. That's the big concept of shalom. Now, according to the Old Testament, according to the Bible, shalom in this world is sort of an elusive thing. That's because of the fall that you read about in Genesis 3 uh, when we rebelled against God as a, as a humankind. And then shalom was sort of lost. And the absence of shalom, according to the Bible, is now part of the life of every man, woman, and child to live on this planet. We all suffer from the loss of relational shalom, physical shalom. We get sick, right? Cultural shalom, economic shalom, right? And so we worry. We don't have inner peace. We're restless. You might say this is the natural state of the human condition, and it stains all sorts of things in our lives. But it's also unnatural. That's what God is telling us in Philippians 4, and really in the whole of Philippians, which is a book about rejoicing. So with all that in mind, let's turn now to the passage, and if you've got a Bible, please follow along. Because I want to preach to you about three things today. Three things that point us to the way to find lasting inner peace and joy and gratitude, the path to conquering the anxiety that we're all familiar with. I want to talk to you about God's will for you. I want to talk to you about Paul the pirate. And I want to talk to you about the elephant. Namely, the elephant that's going to be in the middle of the room by the time my sermon ends. As we dive in, I want you to keep a couple things in mind. The spiritual advice that we're getting here does not come from an armchair, and it does not come from Oprah's studio. It comes from a prison cell, written by a man who knows and who lives in the truth that he's talking about. This is St. Paul. Not just because he's a tough guy, or he's a particularly talented guy, but because he's learned something, he's received something, and he has something to offer. And That's why he says, imitate him, in verse 9 of our passage. Let's lend our ears to St. Paul and to what God is telling us through him because it's going to change our lives. What God wants. This is pretty simple and straightforward. To talk about the absence of peace and inner tranquility and joy in our lives or the presence of anxiety can be a bit unsettling and uncomfortable for us. Anxiety can be hard to talk about, I well know. It's confusing. Sometimes when we name it out loud, it seems very petty and trite and so we tend to downplay it, minimize it, and avoid talking about it. But folks, we need to take this bull by the horns. You don't deal with something by ignoring it. My extended family is a wonderful case study for that. This is recorded. I hope they don't listen. (laughs) Here's the good news. According to St. Paul, joy and peace and deep gratitude are to fill the lives of Christians. This is what God wants. This is what we all want, too, I think, and every human. Paul takes this for granted. And you can just hear Jesus echoing through Paul's words. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, 
do not be anxious about anything. So this inner peace and joy and gratitude that God wants in our lives and the lives of every human isn't just the occasional spontaneous outburst of joy or some fleeting moment of peace. It's something much more consistent, much more steady and sturdy, much more part of our daily experience. It's something that's emotional, but much more than emotions. I think it's a settled disposition, something that gains constancy with each passing day and week and year. This is part of God's blessing and will for us, for you. Right? It's for our benefit, it's very obvious, but also for the benefit of others. Look at verse 5. Inner joy and peace in the life of a person uh, flow outwards uh, in, in a trait that Paul calls reasonableness. Let your reasonableness be known before others. You could translate that word gentleness. What it means is the opposite of quarrelsome, the opposite of being pushy and militant. I think Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, really hits this nail on the head when he says that the, the, the moderation that should flow out of the life of a Christian peace is, is, is moderation is a life which adjusts and adapts to the abilities and circumstances of others, yielding, commending, doing, allowing, forbearing, based on the needs of those around us. Now there's a good recipe for fulfilling the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Verses 4 through 7 of this beautiful passage make it abundantly clear that God wants you and me and all of us to be filled with peace and to rejoice. And that he wants us to experience these things, if I might put it crassly, in spite of all the crap in the world. In spite of all the horrible and sorrowful things that we and the people that we love will probably experience in some way, shape, or form. This is God's desire and will for you. Now, some of you probably think that Revel is stating the obvious here. But I don't think that Revel is. Right? I've met many Christians, myself included, who have lost sight of this. Right? They don't really believe that God wants deep inner peace and joy for them. In fact, they think the opposite. God wants them to be miserable. Now, here's the point. Christ didn't go to the cross so that we could plod miserably through this life, one damn thing after another, and then get into heaven. But there are a lot of Christians who live like this is true. But not Paul, and I hope not you. Do you know this? I want you to be convinced or reconvinced of this, not just for your sake, but also for the benefit of others. For the benefit of others. An Orthodox monk from the 18th century really hits this nail on the head when he says, Acquire inner peace, and thousands around you will be saved. Now, this quest for peace and tranquility and inner joy is an age-old problem. There are lots of different strategies that people have developed to deal with it, different solutions that have been proposed. Consider some of our modern solutions. We often look to medicine, which can be of great benefit in certain circumstances. We look to therapy, psychotherapy. I think especially we look to techniques for dealing with anxiety and the lack of peace. If you go to Chapter's Bookstore to the self-help personal well-being section, you'll find a lot of books there that help you deal with worry and anxiety, and a lot of them focus on technique, breathing patterns, relaxation tools, and dare I say it, yoga. I'm not against yoga. These are some of the ways that we try to crack the problem of anxiety and worry. 
Now, the ancient world, the world of Paul and Jesus, had its own set of options and solutions on the table. I think Paul was pretty well familiar with these because he uses their language in this passage. One of them is Stoicism. Contrary to popular belief, the British didn't invent that. It's actually much older, much more ancient. At the center of the Stoic philosophy, the Stoic strategy for finding peace and inner tranquility were commitments to self-mastery and disinterest. Right? Stoics pursued peace in their lives by being underattached or unattached from the world and the people around them. They wanted to cultivate a certain indifference, to be free from emotions and affections because you can't be made anxious by things that you don't care about. Right? So Stoics would depreciate the things of the world. They would be uninvested in the world. That was their path to serenity. It's very easy to see the logic of that, isn't it? I think that's why Stoicism has a modern appeal. But this will never do for the Christian because we're not called to be indifferent or uninvested in the world. In fact, we're called to be just the opposite. Another very common solution to the problem of peace at Paul's time, which is also at play in Philippians, is what I like to call the Roman Empire Project. See, Rome as a great political, uh, geopolitical power, uh, they had their own solution to that human yearning for peace and security and tranquility. It's known by the, uh, the, the, the phrase Pax Romana. And that's just a shorthand phrase for the peace that Rome brought the world through its military might, its law, its justice, all of that achieved with a lot of violence. And at the center of this grand but somewhat conceited Roman narrative was the Roman emperor. At the time of Jesus and probably some of Paul, it was Caesar Augustus. And the emperor was regarded as semi-divine because he had done what only gods could do. He had brought peace and order out of chaos. There was a lot of propaganda supporting this narrative at Paul's time. Uh, the ascension of the emperor was, to, was hailed as good news or gospel, same word that we use in the New Testament. The, uh, the emperor was known as the Lord. That's the same word that we use to refer to Jesus Christ as Lord in the New Testament. The presence of the emperor in, a, in the empire and in a given city brought stability and peace. The word for presence is the same word we use for the presence of God in the New Testament. If you lived at that time and you had some coins in your pocket, you'd pull them out and you would see this inscribed. You would see the peace of Augustus. You would see the security of Augustus. According to the Roman project, the presence of the Roman emperor in the Roman Empire was the basis of peace. That's what made you sleep easy at night. That's what kept your worries at bay. These were some of the strategies that were around at Paul's time. And it's into this context that he brings an alternative that Paul introduces the secret for becoming a person who is marked by inner joy and thanksgiving and peace that's increasingly consistent. You should notice that Paul's approach is not technique-driven. Relaxation and breathing techniques may deal with the symptoms of anxiety, but not so well with the roots. And the other thing you should notice is that Paul's approach here is massively, profoundly subversive of both the Stoic approach to peace and also uh, the offer of the Roman Empire project. And both of those two alternatives would have been very appealing and perhaps very seductive to a lot of the Christians living in Philippi at this time. 
Now, if we pay very careful attention to Paul's communication in this chapter, we'll see his brilliance and we'll witness his ingenious piracy. Paul's statements have a subtext. There's what we might call a hidden transcript in them. Are you ready? (laughs) Thank you, Colin. (laughs) The hidden transcript is when someone uses familiar words or ideas but vests them with very different meaning. Uh, totally sort of changes the meaning of them, but it's the same word. Let me give you an example. Something happened recently which illustrates this. Sarah Palin, some of you might know her. She's a controversial American politician. Um, She made a comparison between waterboarding and baptism a few months ago. She said that waterboarding is how Americans baptize terrorists. That's what you call hidden transcript. She's using a a term that we would normally associate with solemn and reverent things and then investing it with a heinous and ugly meaning. Paul's doing something similar, except the other way, of course. He's playing the pirate. He's plundering the rhetoric of Rome, and he's ransacking the lingo of Stoicism to tell a different story about how to find peace and joy in this life. There's a very subversive element to what he's doing, And everything that Paul's doing, his whole subversion is based on his commitment to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. This is the bedrock of Paul's reality and for the Christian. So Paul plays off and subverts Rome's propaganda. He says real peace comes from the presence of God. The Lord is at hand, verse 5. That's the source of real peace, not Caesar's presence in the world. And God's peace guards us. Verse 7. The word there is a military word. It would have brought to mind the Roman garrison in the city of Philippi. The garrison whose presence there helped people to feel easy and calm and peaceful when they slept at night. Paul's saying it's not Caesar's military that provides peace. It's knowing that God is Lord that provides peace. That's the basis of real good news just so happens the Roman Empire that a lot of people looked to as a source of security and peace came crashing down a few hundred years after Paul wrote this letter. It wasn't ultimately able to deliver on its promise. But Paul's pirating doesn't end there. He also subverts the Stoic strategy for getting peace. If you look at the list of things that he uh, enumerates in verses 7 through 9, uh, you'll see that these moral exhortations parallel a lot of the Stoic philosophy, the Stoic jargon of that time. Except when Paul's using these words, he's not referring to the Stoic strategy for peace. For the Christian, peace and joy are not a matter of self-mastery. They're not a matter of becoming indifferent and uninvested in the world. Paul's list of things in verse 7 and 9, the things that we're to dwell on, they don't uh, invite us to become Stoics. Christians are not Stoics. No, I think Paul uses these familiar words to point to another story, the story of God's loving and saving presence in the world. So for Paul, truth always focuses on God. Nobility, that refers to things of gravitas, things that aren't trivial. For Paul, what could that have been but the cross of Christ? That's got unparalleled significance for our destiny and our well-being. Justice, for Paul, that would have referred to God's faithfulness to his people things that are admirable and commendable. I think Paul would have been thinking of God's beauty, the beauty of a God who became rich, became poor that we might become rich, a God who emptied himself that we might be filled, a God who does that even when we reject him. Beauty, 
Clever Paul uses all of these words to denote the great truths and declarations of the Christian gospel. For Paul, all roads lead to Christ. That's how he points us to a spiritual outlook that is capable of generating the peace and the joy and the gratitude that we all yearn for. So he's displacing Rome's false story with all of its vain promises. He's challenging the uh, unachievable demands of Stoicism. And he's saying, think, hold fast to the true story of the world according to God. Remember Jesus Christ who lost his shalom, right? whose life and well-being and peace were ripped apart so that yours don't have to be. Remember Jesus Christ who forfeit his peace and his poise and his contentment and died screaming on a cross so that you never have to forfeit those things in the same way. Remember Jesus Christ who offers a peace that the world cannot offer. Jesus Christ who came that our joy might be complete. Words from John's Gospel. Paul says, rejoice in this. Ponder this. Reflect on the implications of it. Give thanks for it. Let it guide your prayers. Keep it at the front of your mind at all times and in every way. And do this, knowing that the presence of God in your life will help you. Now, as I see it, this path to peace and tranquility and joy is far superior than the other options on the table, both ancient and modern. It doesn't necessarily exclude all of them, right? but I think it's a superior bedrock. Let me say two things about this to make the point. The peace that comes from God is not dependent on our circumstances. Look at verse 6b. Paul says that those who experience God's peace and joy pray. They make petitions. They plead before God. You wouldn't be doing this if everything was well in your life, if your circumstances were amiss. You wouldn't pray and plead and petition to God. This means that in order to achieve peace, we don't ever have to resort to violence. We don't ever have to try to manipulate and control our circumstances or the people around us to find inner peace. The Christian has another and superior way to experience peace and joy. And the other thing you should keep in mind is that the peace of God is not dependent on your inner strength or your fortitude, on becoming indifferent to the world, of becoming emotionally dead. Again, look at verse 6b. You don't make requests and concerns known to God if you're indifferent, if you're not really invested in the world, if you've stopped caring. The peace that comes from Christ that Paul talks about goes up and through the misfortunes and challenges of this life. It's a lot more than just expelling negative thoughts. It's a peace that transcends understanding. Do you know this peace? Or are you still trying to find tranquility and joy and contentment in things of the world, in its governments, its armies, its self-help philosophies, in your own sense of being in control? What's really funding your peace? Are we subverting the world's false paths to peace, like Paul, or are we being subjugated to them? That's the question we need to wrestle with. Now, Paul's path to peace works. I look through Christian history, and there's lots of sparkling examples. I want to share one with you today. I made a list this week. It's a story that's linked to the life of Eric Little. Eric Little, the film Chariots of Fire, tells a bit of his story, the early years. He won the gold medal for the 400 meter in the 1924 French Olympics. He earned a bit of a reputation, fame, or um, uh, notori uh, notoriety, or uh, uh, 
disrepute because he wouldn't run on Sunday, as you might remember. What you probably don't know is about the rest of Eric Little's life. After he won the Olympics, he went overseas to China in service uh, as a missionary, and he taught science in a city called Tianjin. I lived there seven years ago, and I had the occasion to visit the place where he worked and lived and learn about his life, and it's a life worth learning about. He was there in 1941 when China was invaded by Japan. This was in the midst of World War II. Japan was expanding its own empire, and in all likelihood, uh, it was going to conquer China and reign indefinitely. Along with a lot of other expatriates in China at that time, Eric Little was rounded up and put into an internment camp. He knew this was coming, and so he put his wife and his two daughters on a boat back to Canada, because his wife was Canadian, just before it happened. But he voluntarily chose to stay. Right? He remained without reservation. As a result, he found himself in a situation of testing. All of a sudden, the circumstances were unfavorable. There was no hope of being rescued by the Allies. Was the peace and joy that had so often characterized his life going to survive all of that? And the answer is yes. While others devoted their energy to hoarding food and thinking about their own survival, Eric Little threw himself into the service of all the people in that camp. His reasonableness and gentleness was known to everyone. He ran classes, he coached, he cared for the elderly who had no one to help them. He gave up his own rations for those in need. All of this with a remarkable contentment and poise that people wrote about. He did this without complaint and with immense visible joy. And in his final days, he did this under the duress of a brain tumor. But owing to his own self-forgetful demeanor, they say he vastly understated the discomfort it was probably causing him. This tumor eventually claimed his life, and he died in that camp only months before liberation. In his dying words, which were repeated to me by the lady who was with him when he died, I met her four years ago, were, it's complete surrender. Surrender to God, trust in God, love of God. Little's very modest tombstone has a passage from Isaiah 41 inscribed, they shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary. Peace that transcends understanding. It can be difficult to understand and explain, but it's real. You have to experience it. Are you? Now, as I draw to a close, there's a million-dollar question lingering. How do we participate in this peace that Paul talks about in Philippians 4? We're not called to be spectators, but participants. On the one hand, Paul says things that seem so beautiful and appealing, but on the other, they seem outrageous and infeasible and impractical. Rejoice always. Don't be anxious about anything. Revel, you're crazy. Sometimes I think that, too. This is the elephant in the room, the big question. Let me lay it out for you. If we want the peace and joy of God to permeate our being, You've got to get a deeper and deeper sense of God's story. You've got to dwell and abide and soak in it, in things that are true and noble and just and beautiful. The sacrifice of Christ, the compassion of God towards us in Christ, the presence of Christ in the world and with us today. The Bible is not a story we read as much as a story that we enter. But it's also a story that the world thinks is crazy. And I think sometimes we do too. This is to be expected. I'm not here to guilt you. I'm here to advise and to point. 
Entering God's story, knowing and trusting God with your entire being is a journey. Faith is something that appears, but it's also something that grows. It's a journey, but it's not an individual journey. If I was going to be yelling, this is when I would do it. Now hear this. My granddad used to say that when he wanted to say something important. Now hear this. None of the imperatives that Paul uses in this passage, give thanks, pray, think about these things, rejoice, all these imperatives, none of them are in the second person singular. They're all in the second person plural. Paul's not saying that you should do this, or you, or you by yourself and in an isolation. He's saying that y'all should do this <laughs> together. To get into God's story, the true story of the world, we need God's presence and we need other people. And these two things go hand in hand. Doesn't the New Testament say that wherever two or three gather in my name, there also I shall be? This is one of the reasons we go to church. Worshiping God with other Christians is essential if we want to live Christianly. It's not work we do by ourselves. And this is absolutely crucial if we want to get God's story into our bones and to avoid thinking that the gospel is just something that we made up or our parents made up, to avoid thinking that the great declaration that Jesus is Lord is just a personal opinion, because it's not. If we go at Christian life alone, if we try to let God's story become our story all by ourselves, then we will fail. We need each other. We need to gather, to sing, to pray, to open scripture together. And friends, the absence of this is probably one of the top three reasons that I know of that people get distant from God and they don't experience the peace and joy that Christ offers. We need each other. In some sense, being a Christian should scare the hell out of us. We need to run together to the church on Sunday and remind ourselves that we're not crazy, that we believe that God in Christ was reconciling himself to the world, that Christ really offers a peace that the world can't offer. But our culture is going to find this foolish and outrageous sometimes. It won't be the first time. It's going to make our lives weird sometimes, but also full of peace, brimming with inner joy and gratitude, consistently, genuinely, perhaps more than you can ask or imagine. So give it a try.